Chapter Three, Part Two of Death in Venice by Thomas Mann, translated by Kenneth Burke. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. He entered the spacious hotel from the rear, by the terraced garden, and passed through the vestibule and the lobby until he reached the desk. Since he had been announced, he was received with obliging promptness. A manager, a small, frail, flatteringly polite man, with a black moustache and a French-style frock-coat, accompanied him to the third floor in the lift, and showed him his room, an agreeable place, furnished in cherry wood. It was decorated with strong-smelling flowers, and its high windows afforded a view out across the open sea. He stepped up to one of them after the employee had left, and while his luggage was being brought up, and placed in the room behind him, he looked down on the beach, it was comparatively deserted in the afternoon, and on the sunless ocean which was at flood-tide, and was sending long low waves against the bank in a calm regular rhythm. The experiences of a man who lives alone, and in silence, are both vaguer and more penetrating than those of people in society. His thoughts are heavier, more odd, and touched always with melancholy. Images and observations, which could easily be disposed of by a glance, a smile, an exchange of opinion, will occupy him unbearably, sink deep into the silence, become full of meaning, become life, adventure, emotion. Loneliness ripens the eccentric, the daring, and estrangingly beautiful, the poetic. But loneliness also ripens the perverse, the disproportionate, the absurd, and the illicit. So the things he had met with on the trip, the ugly old fop with his twaddle about sweethearts, the law-breaking gondolier who was cheated of his pay, still left the traveller uneasy. Without really providing any resistance to the mind, without offering any solid stuff to think over, they were nevertheless profoundly strange, as it seemed to him, and disturbing precisely because of this contradiction. In the meanwhile he greeted the sea with his eyes, and felt pleasure at the knowledge that Venice was so conveniently near. Finally he turned away, bathed his face, left orders to the chambermaid for a few things he still needed done to make his comfort complete, and let himself be taken to the ground floor by the green uniformed Swiss who operated the lift. He took his tea on the terrace facing the ocean, then descended and followed the boardwalk for quite a way in the direction of the Hotel Excelsior. When he returned it seemed time to dress for dinner. He did this with his usual care and slowness, since he was accustomed to working over his toilette and yet he came down a little early to the lobby, where he found a great many of the hotel guests assembled, mixing distantly and with a show of mutual indifference to one another, but all waiting for meal-time. He took a paper from the table, dropped into a leather chair, and observed the company. They differed agreeably from the guests where he had first stopped. A wide and tolerantly inclusive horizon was spread out before him. Sounds of all the principal languages formed a subdued murmur. The accepted evening dress, a uniform of good manners, brought all human varieties into a fitting unity. There were Americans with their long, wry features, 
large russian families english ladies german children with french nurses the slavic element seemed to predominate polish was being spoken nearby it was a group of children gathered around a little wicker table under the protection of a teacher or governess three young girls apparently fifteen to seventeen and a long-haired boy about fourteen years old with astonishment aschenbach noted that the boy was absolutely beautiful his face pale and reserved framed with honey-coloured hair the straight sloping nose the lovely mouth the expression of sweet and godlike seriousness recalled greek sculpture of the noblest period and the complete purity of the forms was accompanied by such a rare personal charm that as he watched he felt that he had never met with anything equally felicitous in nature or the plastic arts he was further struck by the obviously intentional contrast with the principles of upbringing which showed in the sisters attire and bearing the three girls the eldest of whom could be considered grown up were dressed with a chasteness and severity bordering on disfigurement uniformly cloister-like costumes of medium length slate-coloured sober and deliberately unbecoming in cut with white turned-down collars as the only relief suppressed every possible appeal of shapeliness their hair brushed down flat and tight against the head gave their faces a nun-like emptiness and lack of character surely this was a mother's influence and it had not even occurred to her to apply the pedagogical strictness to the boy which she seemed to find necessary for her girls it was clear that in his existence the first factors were gentleness and tenderness the shears had been resolutely kept from his beautiful hair like a prince charming's it fell in curls over his forehead his ears and still deeper across his neck the english sailor suit with its braids stitchings and embroideries its puffy sleeves narrowing at the ends and fitting snugly about the fine wrists of his still childish but slender hands gave the delicate figure something rich and luxurious he was sitting half profile to the observer one foot in its black patent leather shoe placed before the other an elbow resting on the arm of his wicker chair a cheek pressed against his fist in a position of negligent good manners entirely free of the almost subservient stiffness to which his sisters seemed accustomed did he have some illness for his skin stood out as white as ivory against the golden darkness of the surrounding curls or was he simply a pampered favourite child made this way by a doting and moody love aschenbach inclined to believe the latter almost every artist is born with a rich and treacherous tendency to recognise injustices which have created beauty and to meet aristocratic distinction with sympathy and reverence a waiter passed through and announced in english that the meal was ready gradually the guests disappeared through the glass door into the dining hall stragglers crossed coming from the entrance or the lifts inside they had already begun serving but the young poles were still waiting around the little wicker table and aschenbach comfortably propped in his deep chair and with this beauty before his eyes stayed with them the governess a small corpulent middle-class woman with a red face finally gave the sign to rise with lifted brows 
She pushed back her chair and bowed, as a large woman, dressed in grey, and richly jewelled with pearls, entered the lobby. This woman was advancing with coolness and precision. Her lightly powdered hair, and the lines of her dress, were arranged with the simplicity which always signifies taste, in those quarters where devoutness is taken as one element of dignity. She might have been the wife of some high German official, except that her jewellery added something fantastically lavish to her appearance. Indeed, it was almost priceless, and consisted of ear pendants, and a very long triple chain of softly glowing pearls, as large as cherries. The children had risen promptly. They bent over to kiss the hand of their mother, who, with a distant smile on her well-preserved, though somewhat tired and peaked features, looked over their heads, and directed a few words to the governess in French. Then she walked to the glass door. The children followed her, the girls in the order of their age, after them the governess, the boy last. For some reason or other, he turned around before crossing the sill, and since no one else was in the lobby, his strange dusky eyes met those of Aschenbach, who, his newspaper on his knees, lost in thought, was gazing after the group. What he saw had not been unusual in the slightest detail. They had not preceded the mother to the table. They had waited, greeted her with respect, and observed the customary forms on entering the room. But it had taken place so pointedly, with such an accent of training, duty, and self-respect, that Aschenbach felt peculiarly touched by it all. He delayed for a few moments, then he too crossed into the dining-room, and was assigned to his table, which, as he noted with a brief touch of regret, was very far removed from that of the Polish family. Weary, and yet intellectually active, he entertained himself during the lengthy meal with abstract or even transcendental things. He thought over the secret union which the lawful must enter upon with the individual for human beauty to result. From this he passed into general problems of form and art, and at the end he found that his thoughts and discoveries were like the seemingly felicitous promptings of a dream which, when the mind is sobered, are seen to be completely empty and unfit. After the meal, smoking, sitting, taking an occasional turn in the park with its smell of nightfall, he went to bed early, and spent the night in a sleep deep and unbroken, but often enlivened with the apparitions of dreams. The weather did not improve any the following day. A land breeze was blowing. Under a cloudy ashen sky, the sea lay in dull peacefulness. It seemed shriveled up with a close, dreary horizon, and it had retreated from the beach, bearing the long ribs of several sand-banks. As Aschenbach opened his window, he thought that he could detect the foul smell of the lagoon. He felt depressed. He thought already of leaving. Once, years ago, after several weeks of spring here, this same weather had afflicted him, and impaired his health so seriously that he had to abandon Venice like a fugitive. Was not this old feverish unrest again setting in, the pressure in the temples, the heaviness of the eyelids? It would be annoying to change his residence still another time. But if the wind did not turn, he could not stay here. To be safe, he did not unpack completely. 
he breakfasted at nine in the buffet room provided for this purpose between the lobby and the dining room that formal silence reigned here which is the ambition of large hotels the waiters who were serving walked about on soft soles nothing was audible but the tinkling of the tea-things a word half-whispered in one corner obliquely across from the door and two tables removed from his own aschenbach observed the polish girls with their governess erect and red-eyed their ash-blond hair freshly smoothed down dressed in stiff blue linen with little white cuffs and turned-down collars they were sitting there handing around a glass of marmalade they had almost finished their breakfast the boy was missing aschenbach smiled well little fyaschen he thought you seem to be enjoying the pleasant privilege of having your sleep out and suddenly exhilarated he recited to himself the line a frequent change of dress warm baths and rest he breakfasted without haste from the porter who entered the hall holding his braided cap in his hand he received some forwarded mail and while he smoked a cigarette he opened a few letters in this way it happened that he was present at the entrance of the late sleeper who was being waited for over yonder he came through the glass door and crossed the room in silence to his sister's table his approach the way he held the upper part of his body and bent his knees the movement of his white-shod feet had an extraordinary charm he walked very lightly at once timid and proud and this became still more lovely through the childish embarrassment with which twice as he proceeded he turned his face toward the centre of the room raising and lowering his eyes smiling with something half muttered in his soft vague tongue he took his place and now as he turned his full profile to the observer aschenbach was again astonished terrified even by the really godlike beauty of this human child Today the boy was wearing a light blouse of blue and white striped cotton goods with a red silk tie in front and closed at the neck by a plain white high collar this collar lacked the distinctiveness of the blouse but above it the flowering head was poised with an incomparable seductiveness the head of an eros in blended yellows of parian marble with fine serious brows the temples and ears covered softly by the abrupt encroachment of his curls good god aschenbach thought with that deliberate expert appraisal which artists sometimes employ as a subterfuge when they have been carried away with delight before a masterwork and he thought further really if the sea and the beach weren't waiting for me i should stay here as long as you stayed but he went then passed through the lobby under the inspection of the servants down the wide terrace and straight across the boardwalk to the section of the beach reserved for the hotel guests the barefoot old man in dungarees and straw hat who was functioning here as bathing master assigned him to the bathhouse he had rented a table and a seat were placed on the sandy board platform and he made himself comfortable in the lounge chair which he had drawn closer to the sea out into the waxen yellow sand more than ever before he was entertained and amused by the sights on the beach 
this spectacle of carefree civilized people getting sensuous enjoyment at the very edge of the elements the gray flat sea was already alive with waiting children swimmers a motley of figures lying on the sandbanks with arms bent behind their heads others were rowing about in little red and blue striped boats without keels they were continually upsetting amid laughter before the long stretches of bathing-houses where people were sitting on the platforms as though on small verandas there was a play of movement against the line of rest and inertness behind visits and chatter fastidious morning elegance alongside the nakedness which boldly at ease was enjoying the freedom which the place afforded further in front on the damp firm sand people were parading about in white bathing cloaks in ample brilliantly colored wrappers an elaborate sand pile to the right erected by children had flags in the colors of all nations planted around it vendors of shells cakes and fruit spread out their wares kneeling to the left before one of the bathing-houses which stood at right angles to the others and to the sea a russian family was encamped men with beards and large teeth slow delicate women a baltic girl sitting by an easel and painting the sea amidst exclamations of despair two ugly good-natured children an old maid-servant who wore a kerchief on her head and had the alert scraping manners of a slave delighted and appreciative they were living there patiently calling the names of the two rowdy disobedient children using their scanty italian to joke with the humorous old man from whom they were buying candy kissing one another on the cheek and not in the least concerned with any one who might be observing their community yes i shall stay aschenbach thought where would things be better and his hands folded in his lap he let his eyes lose themselves in the expanses of the sea his gaze gliding swimming and failing in the monotone mist of the wilderness of space he loved the ocean for deep-seated reasons because of that yearning for rest when the hard-pressed artist hungers to shut out the exacting multiplicities of experience and hide himself on the breast of the simple the vast and because of a forbidding hankering seductive by virtue of its being directly opposed to his obligations after the incommunicable the incommensurate the eternal the non-existent to be at rest in the face of perfection is the hunger of every one who is aiming at excellence and what is the non-existent but a form of perfection but now just as his dreams were so far out in vacancy suddenly the horizontal fringe of the sea was broken by a human figure and as he brought his eyes back from the unbounded and focused them it was the lovely boy who was there coming from the left and passing him on the sand he was barefooted ready for wading his slender legs exposed above the knees he walked slowly but as lightly and proudly as though it were the customary thing for him to move about without shoes and he was looking around him towards the line of bathing-houses opposite but as soon as he had noticed the russian family occupied with their own harmony and contentment a cloud of scorn and detestation passed over his face his brow darkened his mouth was compressed he gave his lips an embittered twist to one side so that the cheek was distorted 
and the forehead became so heavily furrowed that the eyes seemed sunken beneath its pressure. Malicious and glowering, they spoke the language of hate. He looked down, looked back once more threateningly, then, with his shoulder, made an abrupt gesture of disdain and dismissal, and left the enemy behind him. A kind of prudency or confusion, something like respect and shyness, caused Aschenbach to turn away as though he had seen nothing. For the earnest-minded, who have been casual observers of some passion, struggle against making use, even to themselves, of what they have seen. But he was both cheered and unstrung, which is to say, he was happy. This childish fanaticism, directed against the most good-natured possible aspect of life, it brought the divinely arbitrary into human relationships. It made a delightful natural picture, which had appealed only to the eye, now seemed worthy of a deeper sympathy. And it gave the figure of this half-grown boy, who had already been important enough by his sheer beauty, something to offset him still further and to make one take him more seriously than his years justified. Still looking away, Aschenbach could hear the boy's voice, the shrill, somewhat weak voice with which, in the distance now, he was trying to call hello to his playfellows busied around the sand-pile. They answered him, shouting back his name, or some affectionate nickname, and Aschenbach listened with a certain curiosity, without being able to catch anything more definite than the two melodic syllables like agio, or still more frequently agiu, with a ringing u sound prolonged at the end. He was pleased with the resonance of this. He found it adequate to the subject. He repeated it silently and, satisfied, turned to his letters and manuscripts. His small portable writing-desk on his knees, he began writing with his fountain-pen an answer to this or that bit of correspondence. But after the first fifteen minutes, he found it a pity to abandon the situation, the most enjoyable he could think of, in this manner, and wasted in activities which did not interest him. He tossed the writing materials to one side, and he faced the ocean again. Soon afterwards, diverted by the childish voices around the sand-heap, he revolved his head comfortably along the back of the chair towards the right, to discover where that excellent little agio might be, and what he was doing. He was found at a glance, the red tie on his breast was not to be overlooked. Busied with the others in laying an old plank across the damp moat of the sand-castle, he was nodding, and shouting instructions for this work. There were about ten companions with him, boys and girls of his age, and a few younger ones who were chattering with one another in Polish, French, and in several Balkan tongues. But it was his name which rang out most often. He was openly in demand, sought after, admired. One boy especially, like him a Pole, a stocky fellow who was called something like Joshu, with sleek black hair and a belted linen coat, seemed to be his closest vassal and friend. End of chapter 3, part 2